0: David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers. Episode 8, Resistance is Not Futile, Part 1. By the end of the 2000s, the art and culture of modern tabletop had grown and thrived to the point of breaking into the consciousness of pop culture as a whole. Instead of monopoly and risk, it was Settlers of Catan and Ticket to Ride that began to become standard answers to the question what kind of board games do you play? Two interconnected phenomenon happened next that both reflected tabletop's growing popularity and catalyzed even more growth. They were the worldwide explosion of board game cafes and the arrival of two party games, which are the next two game changers. But first, the cafes. Of course, people have been playing board games in public and quasi-public spaces for millennia, but board game cafes, or restaurants, specifically catering to a tabletop crowd with a library consisting of more than a shelf with chess sets and scrabble boards, are less than 20 years old. The title of the first board game cafe is claimed by several, but... I can't chase down a verified source that pins it down. I do know there's an early episode of the Dice Tower from 2006 that mentions the sudden ubiquity of them in South Korea, but I can't find the specific episode. There was one called the Enchanted Grounds near Denver, Colorado that opened in 2006, according to its website. La Récréation in Montreal, Quebec, opened its doors at the end of October 2007, and Snakes and Lattes in Toronto opened on August the 30th, 2010. I know, because I was there, on opening day, and practically every day thereafter for its first few years, so my observations on board game cafes are based on my experiences there. In the days and weeks that followed the opening of Snakes and Lattes, it seemed like members from all of Toronto's gaming groups stopped by and started becoming aware of each other. If nothing else, but out of curiosity, people wanted to check out the gaming library, which was considerable, taking up an entire wall of IKEA Kalaxes and running the gamut from the old school classics and kitsch to the latest Euro games. And People wanted to see whether a restaurant could really survive, let alone make money, from a business model that mixed two things that tabletop gamers know should never be mixed. Board games, and food and drink. Let alone the logistics of making sure the game stayed in good condition with all their bits intact, let alone how you make money when your customers tend to stay for hours playing games, and the key to restaurant and cafe success is customer turnover. For a year or so, Snakes had a monopoly on the Toronto market, and it soon got to the point where there were one hour waits or longer to get a table, because it turned out that there was a huge pent-up demand for places to go game. Snakes and Lattes proved so successful that within a few years, they had not only expanded the original location, more than doubling its size, but also opened two more locations, one downtown and one midtown. And still couldn't keep up with the demand. This enticed other entrepreneurs into opening their own board game cafes, and within a couple of years there were at least three others serving the Toronto market. The demographics of board game cafes, in Toronto at least, turned out to be quite different than the traditional gaming groups that I had belonged to. First, it was much more female, which was a good thing as far as I was concerned. I think this was due to several factors. One, board game cafes turned out to be a great place to go for dates, particularly first dates, I should know. I went on a few of them there. Two, because each table formed its own ad hoc group, there wasn't the usual kind of implicit or explicit gatekeeping that women had to deal with. You just came in with your friends and played. And three, roughly half of Snake's server-slash-game gurus were female and experienced gamers themselves, which normalized the idea that, yes, you could, in fact, be a knowledgeable woman gamer. The Snake's audience was also, I observed, more diverse racially and ethnically than the board game groups I had attended, I think for a lot of the same reasons. What I'm saying is this. When Snakes opened, I was excited by the possibility of meeting other serious gamers and sitting down to play. Instead, the people who were crowding to get into Snakes and Lattes were in general not the long time tabletop fans and connoisseurs. They, well, we, already had places to play, and we didn't need to pay for the privilege, nor did we need the library of games. But, I was still far from disappointed. I was actually excited by the potential of all sorts of new people coming into the hobby, and I thought these newcomers would start out playing the games of their youth out of nostalgia, and then, out of curiosity, they would begin to move into playing the more interesting games, the ones I loved. As time went on, though, the owners and managers of the different locations ended up pruning their libraries, putting away many of the big, long, and heavy Euro games that were just not being played. Instead, people who were coming out to board game cafes generally wanted and stuck with games that took only a few minutes to explain, required few complicated decisions or planning, and had high socializing potential. They wanted party games. And they never moved on to the Euros, most of them, because party games scratched their particular tabletop itch. This definition of party games easy to explain, light on the decision-making, high interactivity is my own. And it's not perfect. There are beloved party games which violate one or more of those parameters. But as I thought about it, I found that what separates party games from other genres is fuzzier than first apparent, and much depends on context. For example, is British Bulldog a party game? What about roulette? What about pin the tail on the donkey? What about Bingo? On the surface, all of these games fit the parameters I set out. Now, British Bulldog, Tag, Capture the Flag, and other what I would call recess games or schoolyard games can and have been played indoors as icebreakers for their social value. Roulette, and indeed many gambling games, including Bingo, can be played purely for their social value, and in those cases could be thought of as party games. Other more strategic games like Contract Bridge, Whist, Mahjong, Scrabble, and so on, have also formed and continue to form the basis of social clubs around the world. Pin the Tail on the Donkey is a classic birthday game, as is the pinata, and you can have carnival or festival games like Bobbing for Apples, which also fit the definition. In the end, it's all about context. And I've come to conclude that instead of a line separating party from not party... Many games exist along a spectrum. For our purposes, though, I will set out six categories that I think make up the huge majority of party games. Number one, trivia slash quiz. Number two, wordplay. Number three, divination, like uh, Ouija and M.A.S.H. Number four, gambling. Number five, mystery. And number six, challenge, which itself is split into physical versus social. So physical challenge games are like schoolyard games or musical chairs, limbo, twister, cup stacking, or drinking games. Social challenge games are like truth or dare, Mary shag, Berry, never have I ever, and so on and so forth. This episode's Game Changer falls into the mystery category, and the one after that is a social challenge game, but as is usual in these here parts, let's do a little dive into the history of party games so we can set the context. Party games in the ancient and medieval worlds usually involved some combination of gambling, drinking, physical challenges, and in more literary circles, particularly the Far East, Spontaneous Poetry Composition Starting in the 11th century BCE, during the Zhao Dynasty, Zhuling was a challenged drinking game played by all social classes, with the challenges varying according to social class and education. The ancient Greeks would compete to see who could throw the dregs of their wine cups most accurately at various targets, usually causing a big mess. At around the same time, in the Warring States period in China, people tried to toss arrows into a pot in a game called Taohu, which spread to Korea and Japan. And at Oxford University in the 17th century, the tradition of Sing began as a system of punishing students, but evolved into, you guessed it, a challenge drinking game. It was around 1530 that some unknown genius invented a game that came to be called Lotto, which was played by up to 48 players. Each player had their own unique card divided into a four x four or three by six square grid with pictures or numbers in each square. A person called a caller would have a deck of cards or tiles with the pictures or numbers on them and would randomly pick them out one by one, announcing the result to everyone. If you had the picture or number called out, you covered that square on your board, and the first person to get a complete row covered would win the round. About four centuries later, in December 1929, a man named Edwin S. Lowe was making his way through the Southern United States on his sales route. The son of an Orthodox rabbi, Lowe had been born in Poland, and had emigrated with his family to Palestine, where he'd studied for a while and then, with dreams of riches in the Golden Medina in his head, emigrated, along with hundreds of thousands of others, to the United States, where he got a job as a traveling toy salesman. Later, he liked to say he'd been given the southern states as a sales route because of his youth and inexperience. That's because the end of 1929 was the beginning of the Great Depression, and the poor folks south of the Mason-Dixon line were not keen to buy toys when they were losing their family farms on an epic scale. But one night, at a carnival in Georgia, he found a booth where people were actually standing in line for a chance to play a game where they covered cards with beans. It was Lotto, which, because of the beans, they were calling Beano. Lowe spent the night talking to the owner of the booth and then went back to New York and with the help of a mathematician from Columbia University worked out what we now think of as the standard bingo card. And in fact, he renamed it bingo. The card was a five by five grid with a free spot in the middle and each column was represented by a letter and a number from one to 75. The rest, as they say, was history. Amazingly, Lowe was also in on the ground floor of another mid-century classic when in 1959 he bought the rights to a dice game invented by an unnamed Canadian couple. I have not been able to find their names. Since this couple played the game on their yacht, they called the game the Yacht Game, which Lowe changed to Yachtsy. But let's rewind. Some would argue that party games as we know them really came into their own only in the 19th century in England, where they were known as parlor games. Certainly, the Victorians loved their parlor games. Charades, perhaps the best-known parlor game of all, is mentioned in novels of the era such as Vanity Fair and Jane Eyre although apparently its origin lies in mid 16th century France, where it began as a purely literary, written, riddle-like activity. It was only in the early 19th century when upper-crust Frenchmen and women began acting out these riddles for their own amusement, and their English counterparts brought the practice back to their drawing rooms, where it spread throughout the whole, quote, civilized, unquote, world. Parlor games of all sorts soon became not just accepted, but expected in all well-bred households and those that aspired to be well-bred. Books appeared which provided hosts with a plethora of options. I found one example, Castle's Book of Indoor Amusements, Card Games and Fireside Fun from 1882. It has over 200 pages worth of activities of all sorts, including of course, parlor games many of which we would recognize today, including charades, but also 20 questions, musical chairs, Simon Says, and Russian gossip, which we know as Broken Telephone. Deconstruct that title, why don't you? The next milestone we'll visit on our way back to the present is a game called Jury Box from 1935 or 37, depending on where you look, which was designed by a Roy Post, about whom little is known, and published by Parker Brothers, who by virtue of being the publishers of Monopoly, were already one of the biggest toy and game companies in the world. Jurybox was the ancestor of games like Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective and modern mystery party games that started to appear in the 1980s, about which more in a bit. There were six cases inside the first game, which became a series apparently, and players were meant to be members of the jury deciding on the verdict. There was evidence to look at and even two photographs of the crime scene. Players voted on the ballots and then compared their results to the answer in the box. A couple of decades later, with the rise of the suburban and educated middle class in the United States after World War II, Party games became more popular than ever, as families and upwardly mobile singles looked for more modern cosmopolitan ways to entertain each other during and after cocktail hour. I have a book called Games for Insomniacs by John Fuller, which was originally published in 1966, but contains material from as early as 1957. Each chapter has a different kind of wordplay-related game. Some examples are... Making up advertising jingles or slogans based on literary quotations. For instance, Macbeth's laundromat, Out, out, damned spot. Guessing the names of celebrities based on their birth names. Did you know that Marian Morrison grew up to be John Wayne? Coming up with punny reporter games. If you're given I'm blank from the sun, for instance, you could say tanned, as in I'm tanned from the sun. Finally, making up stories from twisted phrases, so too many brooks spoil the cloth, and you'd make up a story around that. Avalon Hill, whom we met in Episode 5 is the company that popularized modern war games, had a whole line of party games including 1959's Verdict, which was essentially an updated jury box, as well as 1964's Facts in 5, which was the ancestor to Scattergories. As the 60s went on, and the youth movement began to shake up conventional mores with their long hair, Beatles music, hula hoops, and contraceptive pills, party games began to get more um, swingery, and no game epitomized the swinging 60s than 1966's Twister. It's no surprise that Austin Bowers had a coffee, baby. Now, through the late 60s and into the 70s, it was a lot more common for party games to have overt sexual, political, and medicinal themes. And then, the 80s started. Perhaps it was the rise of neoconservatism in Thatcher's England and Reagan's America. Perhaps it was simply the baby boomers aging out of their wild youths into more settled parenthood and middle age. Whatever the reasons the 80s saw the rise of a series of hugely successful party games from categories that had been out of style for a while, such as trivia and wordplay. The game that arguably started this boom was, of course, 1981's Trivial Pursuit, invented by two Montreal newspapermen, Chris Haney and Scott Abbott, when they realized that their copy of Scrabble was missing some tiles The first printing of the game lost money, because the original manufacturing costs came to $75 a copy, and they were giving them to stores for $15. Haney and Abbott, who had taken on two business partners, then sold the rights to Selcho and Ryder in 1983, and thanks to a well-financed advertising blitz, the game went on to sell 20 million copies in the United States in 1984 alone. This Canadian game... I want to point out, became a worldwide smash hit starting a boom for trivia games that lasted through the decade. By 2014, there were more than 50 editions of the game, and sales had passed 100 million units worldwide. The designers and original investors all became rich, as well as targets for lawsuits. The first was from Fred Wirth, the author of a book called The Trivia Encyclopedia, who claimed they had lifted a quarter of the questions from the original edition right out of his book. Despite admitting to the plagiarism, Abbott and Haney won the lawsuit by claiming that the trivia facts per se were not owned by anyone. The second lawsuit was from David Wall, not the David Wall who is or was the lead singer of the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir, but a Nova Scotia man who claimed he'd been hitchhiking when Haney had picked him up. Wall claimed he told Haney all about his idea for a trivia game, including even the idea for the wedge-shaped pieces. In the end, after 13 years of legal wrangling, the Nova Scotia Supreme Court ruled against Wall. Gameplay-wise, Trivial Pursuit was nothing special. Roll and move around the six-spoked board, answer questions to keep your turn alive, gather wedges from the special spaces at the end of each spoke, and then head for the middle when you'd accumulated all six wedge-shaped trophies. What set Trivial Pursuit apart was both the quantity and quality of its questions. There were six 1,000 questions on 1,000 cards, which ensured players would get lots of plays in before questions started repeating, and the designers made it a point of pride that their questions were well-researched and up-to-date. The years that followed Trivial Pursuit's release can truly be called a golden age for party games. Listen to the following list, 1984, Balderdash, 1985, Pictionary, 1985, How to Host a Murder, 1986, Outburst. 1988, Scattergories. 1989, Taboo. 1991, Headbands. These eight party games are still huge sellers 20-plus years on. Meanwhile, as we saw in Episode 3, over in Germany, designer Klaus Teuber began his career with the clay-molding party game Barbarossa, which won the Spiel des Jahres in 1989 party game boom petered out by the end of the 90s, at least in terms of big new designs, but even so, the turn of the millennium saw the appearance of 1999's Time's Up, 2002's Seen It, 2005's Wits and Wagers, and 2009's Telestrations, all of which have also gone on to attract fans of their own and continue to sell today. But of all the party games from the 80s golden era, the one that proved the direct ancestor to this episode's Game Changer was a little-known game from a quirky and beloved publisher better known for its role-playing games, hex and counter war games, and its willingness to do almost anything for a larf. But that part of the story will have to wait for next week. That was part one of episode eight of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, Thanks for listening. See you next time, and don't flip that table.